This morning, we start a new three-sermon series on prayer. I've titled it Prayer, Oxygen, or Oxygen Mask. You know, when you fly like I do, we have a safety presentation that involves this kind of a mask as part of the presentation. I must say that I was on a small airline recently on the tarmac. Every seat was filled. The stairway down to the tarmac was down. And after we waited a little while, someone who looked like a pilot, although he wasn't old enough to shave, came up the staircase wearing a pilot's uniform that it looked like he had slept in. His tie was off to the side, and he said, Good morning. We're flying to Nassau, and all the seat cushions float. That was it. So I looked behind me. Beth was behind me, and I, as much as say, You want to go through with this? And she said, Yeah, okay. God looked over us, and we got here safely. But when you fly on a bigger plane... And uh, you're getting the safety check. The steward or the stewardess talks about if the cabin pressure uh, goes down, that these will pop out of the uh, overhead bulk, uh, bulwark, and they will be ready to give you oxygen. And you are, are told how to put it over your nose and mouth and get it to start giving you oxygen, and you're supposed to get yourself squared away before you help your children or those who need assistance. You've, you've heard it. And quite frankly, uh, I don't, not proud to admit it, but often I zone out when that safety presentation is being made because really I zone out because I think I really won't need it. I really won't need it. All the flying I've done, I've never needed it, so I probably won't need it. But you know, I'm glad it's there. I'm glad to know where it's going to be if I need it. And if I need it, I'll certainly be appreciative for it. Sometimes we as believers, if the truth be told, view prayer like this that we know to pray, we know that God invites us to pray, but we really don't pray as much as we should because, you know, we'll handle things uh, without prayer, so we think. Really, prayer ought to be more like the air in the cabin of the aircraft than just this oxygen mask should there be a crisis. Uh, As we breathe the air in the aircraft, as we're talking to the person beside us, as we're eating our snack, as we're reading a magazine, whatever we're doing, we are breathing. And God says in his word that prayer should be like that. We should pray without ceasing. So let me ask you, how many times have you breathed today? Our prayer is to be such that we are praying without ceasing, similarly to breathing. And so we don't want to view prayer like an emergency measure that we don't give much thought to until we're told that we're in trouble. Rather, we want to breathe the oxygen within air constantly, and we are to pray without ceasing. The series will be three messages, as I mentioned, Um, three messages that will deal with proper knowledge because proper knowledge is what will promote proper prayer. And what we're going to look at together in three messages is that the proper knowledge of God promotes proper praying. That's this message. God willing, next Lord's Day, we will look that the proper knowledge of Satan promotes proper praying. And then two weeks' time, if God spares life, we will see that a proper knowledge of ourselves will also prompt us to properly pray 
to God. So a proper knowledge of God, a proper knowledge of Satan, and a proper knowledge of ourselves, these knowledges can help us properly pray to God. Big idea of this message is simply this. This is what I want you to walk away from in your billfold or your purse or your mind or your pocket. The big idea of this message is quite simple. It's this, to properly pray, we have proper knowledge of God. To properly pray, we must have proper knowledge of God. Proper knowledge of God includes but is not limited to the facts that God is personal. God is loving and all-wise. God is all-powerful and gracious. God is merciful and God is interested in you. God is sovereign. The proper knowledge of God is not limited to, but it includes the fact that God is consistent. God is just. God is supreme. God is a keeper of all of his promises. God is eternal, without beginning and without ending. And God, to state the obvious, is divine. He is God. Now, watch this with me. If we don't have a proper knowledge of God, then most likely we won't properly pray. And why is that? Because if we don't know that God is personal, then to us he has no mind, no feelings, and no will. If we don't know that God is loving, then to us he has no ear or heart for us. If we don't know that God is all-wise, then to us he has no plan. If we don't know that God is all-powerful, then to us he has no solutions. If we don't know that God is gracious, then to us, we don't believe he provides second chances. If we don't know that God is merciful, then to us, he has no forgiveness available. If we don't know that God is interested, then to us, he has no love. If we don't know that God is sovereign, boss over his universe, then to us, he has no control over things. If we don't know that God is consistent, then to us, he has no dependability. If we don't know that God is just, then to us, he has no standards. If we don't know that God is supreme, then to us, he has no victory. And if we don't know that God is a keeper of all his promises, then to us, he has no predictability. And if we don't know that God is eternal, then to us he has no uniqueness. And so if we don't know that God is any of these things, then to us really he is not even God in our understanding if we lack this knowledge. And then we arrive at a place that is a dead end. Every man for himself. And so let me ask you and me honestly, would you bother to regularly pray to a God you don't know to have a mind? You don't know to have feelings? You don't know to have a will? You don't know to have an ear or a heart for you? Would you even bother to regularly pray to a God you do not know to have a plan, solutions, second chances, 
a willingness to forgive? Would you regularly bother to pray to a God that you do not know to have love for you, complete control, dependability, and standards? Would you bother to pray to a God who you do not know has consistency and victory and predictability and uniqueness and divinity? I wouldn't pray to such a God either if that was my limited knowledge. I would be at a dead end. Survivor puts it outwit, outplay, outlast. But thank God, glory to God, that from our Bibles we can and do know that God is in fact personal and loving and all-wise and all-powerful and gracious and merciful and interested and sovereign and consistent and just and supreme, keeper of all promises and eternal and, in fact, God. We know that by the Bible. The Bible, when you think about it, is God's self-portrait. The Bible, when you think about it, is God's autobiography. And from his holy word, from the scriptures, we can know accurately who God is, what he is like, what he is on record as saying. We are of all people most privileged. The Old Testament saint knew the Old Testament scriptures, but we have the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures. We have a completed Bible. We are of all people most privileged. And because we know from God's word that God is all of these wonderful things, it makes a great deal of sense that we pray to him, that we properly pray to him that we pray to him to adore him, to seek his forgiveness, to thank him, that we pray to him to ask for guidance, to ask for protection. We pray to him to ask for healing, and we pray to him to thank him. It makes a great deal of sense to pray to him to feel his love and to feel his nearness and to overcome our weaknesses and our sins. It makes a great deal of sense with the proper knowledge of God to pray to him to impact others in positive ways and to hear from him with Holy Spirit impressions congruent with the word in our hearts. And so the big idea today is that to properly pray, we must have the proper knowledge of God. When I was thinking about this truth, I remembered a very interesting account in Jesus' earthly ministry. The woman at the well in John chapter 4. A true story, a remarkable story, with so many layers of meaning and application. You may recall from the true story that she had had five husbands, and the man that she was then living with was not her husband. She was at the well getting water in the very heat of the day because her lifestyle had caused her great scorn and public shame. Jesus came to the water well in the will of his father, and he was thirsty. And he asked this particular woman to give him a drink of water. She was surprised that Jesus, being a Jew, was talking with her, a Samaritan woman. And then when you come to that true account in John chapter 4, you come to a very interesting verse as it has impact on our big idea this morning 
about the proper knowledge of God is necessary for a proper prayer life to God. And in John chapter 4, verse 10, in the middle of this true historical account of Jesus meeting a wayward Samaritan woman at a water well, Jesus said to her, according to John 4, 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This is very interesting. Jesus tied a lot of her solution into better knowing better knowing the gift of God that he offered her, and better knowing who he, in fact, was, the Messiah. He said to the woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. Church, if we would properly know Christ, we would ask him in prayer. A proper knowledge of God promotes a proper prayer life. She didn't know, so she didn't ask. To properly pray, we must have the proper knowledge of God. If she had known, she would have asked. And equally, a lack of the proper knowledge of God prevents proper prayer. She didn't know, so she didn't ask. This next extended illustration is not true. It's fiction. It is not a true story. Let's say that there was a young man who was in foster care waiting to be adopted. He was willing to be adopted, but he didn't know about any adoption or if there, in fact, would be an adoption someday. Let's say that billionaire Sam Walton, who started Walmart stores and Sam's Club, decided to adopt that particular young man. And with the stroke of a judge's pen, the young man became a billionaire's son. Let's say that the adoption was finalized, but the young man didn't even know about it. The adoption agency had tried to inform the young man. The court had also tried to inform him. And Sam Walton himself had attempted to notify the young man that he was adopted. But the young man, for his own reasons, had successfully made himself a real recluse who was completely flying under the radar of everybody. The young man was happy to live completely unto himself with no real contact with others. But let's say the young man never opened his mail. He never answered his doorbell. He never listened to his voicemails. He never checked his emails or his texts or his WhatsApps. Let's say he was totally flowing, flying solo in life and liking it. Let's say in due time, the young man needed money for college. If he had known that he had become the adopted son of billionaire Sam Walton, he would have asked for, and Mr. Walton would have gladly given him everything he needed for college. 
You see, in this fictitious story, a lack of proper knowledge about his adopted father caused the young man not even to ask for what would have been easily his. But actually, it's worse. It's worse than missing out money for college. The young man in this fictitious illustration who lacked a proper knowledge about his adoptive father also caused him to miss out on time spent with Mr. Walton. Miss out on conversations, miss out on advice, miss out on a loving relationship that Mr. Walton wanted to have. He would have missed out on feelings of belonging in a family. Of course, my brothers and sisters in Christ, when you were born again, you were adopted. You became God's child. The Bible tells us so. And we ought to let a proper knowledge of that loving adoption fuel a proper prayer life with our Heavenly Father. You see, whenever you pray, you come to your Heavenly Father as his very own son or daughter. This big idea in this message that a proper knowledge of God is necessary to have a proper prayer life is seen in both the Old and the New Testaments. And let me just give you some examples, a very limited group of examples. Take Psalm 9, verses 9 and 10, when the psalmist said this, the Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble, and those who know thy name will put their trust in thee, for thou, O Lord, hast not forsaken those who seek him. The psalmist in Psalm 9 is saying he understands his father God to be a stronghold, and he understands the father's name, because in the Hebrew mindset, the name of God stood for all the attributes of God, all the will of God all the power, etc., of God. And the psalmist says in Psalm 9 that because he knew God to be his stronghold, because he understood and understood the knowledge of the name of God, therefore he trusted in God. He prayed to God. He sought God in prayer. Or the psalmist in Psalm 16 in verse 8, who said, I have set the Lord continually before me, Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Another Old Testament example of a psalmist who said, I have set the Lord and my knowledge of the Lord continually before me. And because I have, he's at my right hand as my guide, defense, provider. I will not be shaken, I'll pray. Or you know Jonah I see so much of myself in Jonah, truth be told. God commissions him as a Hebrew to take the good news that a relationship with God through faith is possible to Nineveh, to the Ninevites in Assyria. Jonah says, forget that, God, basically. Forget that. I'm going the opposite direction. I hate the Ninevites. Maybe some people would view ISIS as Jonah viewed the Ninevites. Both were intimidating, gruesome, violent people. The Assyrians beheaded people and made heads out of pyramids out of heads to intimidate their enemies. 
Jonah knew all about that. And when God said, go to Nineveh, <laughs> I imagine Jonah said, what? Me? I'm scared. And I don't like him. In fact, we found out later in the book, he didn't even want them to be saved. He didn't even want them to be spared. He didn't even want them to be forgiven. He didn't even want them to be brought into the uh, family that was exclusively Jewish. So you know the story. He gets on a ship. He's going the opposite direction. He's in the ship sleeping. There's a tremendous life-threatening tempest and storm. The pagan soldiers believe in God and respect God more than Jonah because when Jonah comes on board, they drill him with questions. He, they figure out he's a runaway prophet from the one living true God, and the storm is all his fault. And Jonah says, throw me overboard and you'll be all right. And these guys feared God more than Jonah. They say, we're not throwing you overboard. We don't want your blood in our hands. And he says, throw me over. So eventually he prevailed on them. They threw him overboard, and you know what happened. God appointed a great fish that swallowed the runaway prophet, and the sea calmed down. (laughs) And Jonah 2.7 is part of his prayer from the gut of the fish. And Jonah said to God from being ingested inside this fish, Jonah prays, when I was fainting away, that's an understatement. When I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to thee, into thy holy temple. A proper knowledge of God that Jonah had before he was a disobedient and runaway prophet, he remembered a proper knowledge of God. So he prayed. You know the story that God spared him and redeployed him to Nineveh. He still got a bad attitude by the end of the story because he still didn't want those Ninevites to be spared. We're seeing Old and New Testament some examples of how a proper knowledge of God leads to a proper prayer life. In Ephesians 1, 3 through 12, a definitive statement on our identity in Christ and the blessings we have in the spiritual places in Christ Jesus Let this wash over you, child of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, the beloved, Christ, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In him, that is Christ, also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Because you're adopted as you learn in God's word, because it's all of grace, because you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb found in the Word of God, because you have an inheritance in Christ reserved that will not spoil or fade, 
because you have hope as found in the Word of God, because you know these things about your God, because you know these things about His marvelous salvation, you pray with intelligence. You pray sustained prayers. You don't look at prayer like this. You breathe. You pray without ceasing. Jesus, in his great Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, 7 to 11, gives us some very instructive teaching. Jesus' words, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. Ask, seek, knock. Pray, pray, pray. Ask, seek, knock. Pray, pray, pray. For everyone, Jesus said, who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it shall be opened. Or, what man is there among you when his son shall ask him for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he shall ask for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Jesus is making a teaching point with contrast. He's saying if you as an earthly, fallen, sin-prone father know how to give good gifts to your children as they ask, will not the perfect, sinless, righteous, heavenly Father give perfect gifts when we ask? When? We ask. When we, when we ask, when we seek, and when we knock. Now, I want to share with you a prayer cycle. This prayer cycle is like the face of a clock. At 12 o'clock is no God's will. At Three o'clock is do God's will. At six o'clock is think God's will. And at nine o'clock is pray God's will. We jump into this cycle at with the word of God. If you want to pray the will of God, and I trust that you do, you must start on the prayer cycle circle with the word of God. There's no other place to start. Start with the word of God. And when you understand what Jesus said in John 14, 25, 14, 15, excuse me, he, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Where will we find out about God's commandments? In the word of God. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. The obe- obeying God's commandments is the doing of God's will. That's where we start. After the doing of God's will, we come to a verse like Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desire of your heart. Desires of your heart. Now, there are preachers on television, prosperity preachers, and preachers on this island, no shortage of them, that would have us to believe that in this verse, Psalm 37, 4, that God is saying... um, You delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you every desire in your heart. You want $100,000? God will give it to you if you just pray and delight. No, 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 no. This is not saying that. This is saying to delight ourselves in the Lord, he will author his desires in our hearts. 
That's a big difference. By the way, could you tell me, please, if the prosperity theologians and pastors can explain why Jesus was homeless? Why the only belongings our Lord had were uh, raffled and gambled away at the foot of the cross? If God wills it that everyone who believes in Jesus is rich and healthy, why was Jesus homeless? Because God doesn't will that every believer follower of Jesus is materially rich, because we're spiritually rich. And so we start on this circle with the word of God. We obey the word of God. That's doing the will of God. We understand that God will author his desires in our hearts if we delight ourselves in him. You say, Pastor Rob, how do I delight myself in the Lord? Am I delighting myself in the Lord? It's really simple. What or who do you think about when you're free to think about anything? When you're in the shower or the bathtub, who or what do you think about? When you're driving in Nassau, watching the traffic carefully, who or what do you think about when you're driving? When you lay your head on the pillow to go to sleep overnight, who or what are you thinking about? When you look at your checkbook, who or what are you thinking about? When you think about a relationship or friendship, who or what are you thinking about? When you're free to think about anything at all, who or what are you thinking about? If it's Jesus Christ, if it's the triune God, then you are delighting yourself in the Lord. If you never think about God when you're free to think about anything, I question whether you delight yourself in the Lord. But when we delight ourselves in the Lord, he authors his desires in our hearts. And then that means we're thinking God's will. So we started with God's word. We came to delighting in God. And then we come to thinking God's will. And then in John 15, verse 17, Jesus' own words, if you abide in me, and John 15, 10, and 1 John 3, verse 24, define abiding. Abiding is obeying. If I'm not obeying what I understand the Bible teaches, then I'm not abiding. If I say I'm abiding but not obeying the Scriptures, I am deluded. To abide means to obey. It's that simple. So if I abide in God, if I obey God, Jesus said, John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. If you're delighting yourself in the Lord, if you're obeying the scriptures, then ask what you wish, because God has authored his desires in your heart. So we start on this cycle with the word of God, which brings us to the doing of God's will. Then we go to delighting in God, which brings us to the thinking of God's will. Then we abide in Christ and his word, which brings us to praying God's will. Want to pray God's will? That's how it happens. But then going past on the circle from the uh, 9 o'clock position to the 12 o'clock noon position, then Jesus tells us that he, before the cross, that he would die, that he would be raised from the dead, that he would ascend, and that he would sit at the Father's right hand, and then after that happened, the Holy Spirit would be sent on the day of Pentecost. 
This is what Jesus said in the upper room before the cross, John 16, 12 to 15. Jesus said, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, notice it's a he, not an it, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is a person. He has intellect, emotion, and will. He's not a force. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose it to you, disclose it to you what is to come. Jesus went on, he shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. Second time, disclose it to you. Jesus went on, all things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Third time in that teaching of Jesus. Third time, the Holy Spirit's anticipated ministry back then was to disclose God to us, God's will to us. So here's how it works. When that happens, now you know God's will, and then it feeds on itself. Know God's will, do God's will, think God's will, pray God's will. I'll leave those scriptures for you to study on your own. But remember, if you want to pray God's will, you must start with the Word of God. There's no other place to start. And so to properly pray, we must have the proper knowledge of God, and the proper knowledge of God is in the Scriptures. The Scriptures. So you say, okay, Pastor Rob, I hear what you're saying, that to have a proper knowledge of God is to have a proper prayer life. I buy that. I believe that. But how can I have more knowledge of God? I don't know that I have enough knowledge of God. I'm a new Christian, or I've been a lazy Christian. How do I get more knowledge of God? Well, here are some ways that I thought of by way of application. The Bible, the first and foremost way for any of us to get a greater knowledge of God is the Bible, to read it regularly, to study it seriously, to teach it accurately, to attend a Sunday school class here of the church or a mini church. If you want a greater knowledge of God, start with the Bible. The second thing I would say is if you want a greater knowledge of God, don't forget theology. Theology is putting all the biblical facts about God together in a comprehensive and in a uh, logical, clear uh, division and category. Get a good study Bible. There are lots of good study Bibles around. Um, I prefer the Ryrie Study Bible or the MacArthur Study Bible, but there are others. If you want to get a better knowledge of God understanding theology better than one of the textbooks we use in our ordination class to prepare a whole new wave of pastors for Calvary Bible Church is Basic Theology. Basic Theology by Charles Ryrie. A tremendous, clear, comprehensive treatment. Or Teleos Bible Institute right here in Nassau. Pastor Lee, over the years, was led to start Teleos, and they offer Bible-based and theologically sound courses for believers from all different churches in Nassau. Check it out. And so if you want to gain more knowledge of God, start with the Bible, include theology. Number three, have more spiritually mature believers in your life. Make appointments with those people. Hey, on Wednesdays at 5 o'clock, can I meet you at Starbucks to talk about God? with our Bible between us. Make appointments. Take notes. When the Bible is preached or taught in this assembly, take notes. It'll help you pay attention, and it will give you something that you can refer to later. 
Serve alongside more spiritually mature believers and watch and listen to how they do ministry and how they see life and the marriage and children, money. A fourth way to gain a greater knowledge of God is to share the gospel, to share Christ, to share the good news, to invite lost people to come to saving faith in Christ. Do you know how that's going to increase your knowledge of God? Because over the 50 years I've been sharing my faith, often the person I'm sharing my faith to has a good question I don't know an answer to. It drives me to gain more knowledge of God through his word. If you will regularly share your faith in prayer and love, you will be driven to the word of God to understand God better. I guarantee it. Ask questions, number five. Ask questions in a Sunday school class, in a mini church, in a mentoring relationship. Ask of your parents who've known Christ longer than you. Ask of your spiritual parents if your parents aren't yet saved. Ask questions. A sixth way, a practical way to gain greater knowledge of God is to do inductive Bible study. Inductive Bible study takes the truths of the Bible out of the Bible, and you don't read anything into the Bible of your presuppositions or your assumptions. So inductive Bible study comes to God's Word filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit with an open mind to learn, and you observe the Bible, what does it say? You interpret the Bible, what does it mean? And then you apply the Bible, what difference does it make in my life? If you want to get more knowledge of God, then be an inductive student of the Bible. Ask of every verse or passage you are reading in God's Word, who, what, when, where, why? The seventh way that I would commend to you to consider to gain a greater knowledge of God is to observe everyday life with theological eyes. Observe everyday life with theological eyes. Let me give you some examples, all from the island. When you see a car ahead of you being driven, that can be an illustration of what it means to be in Christ. The person driving the car will get to where the car gets to. Everything that happens to the car happens to the driver. It's an illustration of being in Christ. The other day on Bay Street, <laughs> on Bay Street, the huge traffic jam, huge. And so finally I come upon a car that's perpendicular to the lane I'm driving in, and it's just sitting there. And I'm thinking, why don't you pull out? People are letting you go across. Well, they didn't pull out because there's no driver in the car. No driver. That's an illustration that if you are not in Christ, if you are not born again, if you are not saved, your car really goes nowhere. Or I am told, I haven't counted, that there are 2,200 churches in Nassau. I'm not commending every one of them. What does that say theologically? One thing it says is that people on this island want to get together to worship. That's a theological observation. 
Or during the school year, when I drive into the church to get to the office around 7.45 a.m., I often see big sisters holding the hand of their very little sisters and walking them safely to school. I love to see that because it reminds me of God the Father's compassionate, tender care of me and all of his adopted children. The way that these big sisters make sure that their little sisters get to school theologically reminds me of the care of my Heavenly Father. Let's talk about the poor souls you see standing outside of Island Luck. Let's talk about them. What theological lesson can we learn from those poor souls who are addicted and in bondage to gambling? Well, one thing we can learn is that God's word tells us that God has ordained work to gain money, not gambling for money. God has ordained honest effort for money, not money for luck. And you can see that you can go Every day you can look around you and you can see life situations through theological eyes and it will drive you back to what the Word of God says that God is like. And so going back to the fictitious extended illustration of Sam Walton adopting a kid and the kid not knowing that he was adopted, therefore the child, the the young man, didn't ask of Sam Walton where he could have asked, what he could have asked. We're saying that to properly pray, we must have the proper knowledge of God. We must see prayer as constant, a privilege, just like we have air to breathe in the airplane cabin. We must not reduce prayer to this. Yeah, I know about it. If I'm ever in real trouble, I'll use it. Prayer is to be oxygen and not merely an oxygen mass. We pray. Father, it is an amazing blessing that we would have your ear and your heart at any time about anything that the Lord Jesus has made the access to your throne of grace possible, we would desire to see the incredible blessing and privilege of prayer as like the air we breathe and not like an oxygen mask in case. Lord, those of us who have known you any length of time, Know that you are a prayer-hearing God, and you are a prayer-answering God. We know, Lord, that your plan and purpose are flawless, and your power is unrivaled. Help us, Lord, to be a praying assembly. Help us to move forward into your will on our knees, because we are praying. We ask these things excited about what you're going to do in our private prayer closets, in our 
marital prayer closets and in our assemblies, larger prayer closet. We love you, Lord. We can only say it because you have first loved us. And we pray in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen. Amen. 